Hello and welcome to BWB Extra, where we get to know comedian, speaker and podcaster Callie Beaton a little better. We hear why Callie traded in a six-figure TV exec salary for the comedy circuit after a serendipitous lunch with the late and great Joan Rivers. She tells us who she looks up to in comedy, the most misunderstood thing about comedians and that time she turned down signing South Park for MTV. What was the trigger for you deciding to do comedy? When I was on the board of these companies, I was on the business side, so I was just generating revenue, so not on the sexy side. But we would take A-listers, we would take on-screen talents to events in Cannes or Banff or wherever and run events for industry executives where the talent would be wheeled out in order to get them to invest in the shows. It's kind of a long story short. Among the people I worked with then, I got to know Joan Rivers very well. Mm. Oh, wow. And wow. we did quite a few things with her. The legend. Yeah, it's the legend. And she, I had dinner with her just the two of us. It was the last time I saw her and it was two weeks before she unexpectedly died. She said to me, Kelly, the stuff you do at these industry events is is warm up. It's like it's increasingly like stand-up you're doing and you should give stand-up a go. I think you've got the chops for it. And I said, I'm, it's too late. I was 45 when she said it. And I said, I'm 45. I'm a single parent of two kids. One of them's got special needs. I've got a job in a boardroom. It's way too late. And she just looked at me and said, I'm 81. You're in the thick of it what's holding you back and she died two weeks later and two weeks after that I did my first open mic gig fantastic so it was all thanks to a serendipitous conversation with a certain 81 year old to remind you it's never too late well it isn't too late and right now um, just just on the thing though because this is probably probably one of the most things I most believe in I interviewed Alistair McGowan for my Mm. podcast last week and he at the age of 49 took the piano up again and is now a world class pianist oh wow and when he thought it was too late to take the piano up again um, his, his now piano teachers um, cited to him an example of a 60-year-old who took up piano at 60 and by 80 was playing Grieg's piano concerto. So I don't feel it. I'm now 54. I've still got other reinventions left in me. This isn't it. There's loads more to be done. My dad's still working at 79, nearly 80. So I really, that's probably the most important thing anyone can hear is not to be limited by age. Who do you really look up to? Have you got any, I mean, whether they're alive or dead that you're like, they're the dons for me. Yeah, I guess um, a lot of it, because I worked for American kind of companies, my my last sort of 10 years in media were working for Hollywood studios from here, but, but sitting on boards in the States and shuttling back and forth a lot. And I did a lot of work with Comedy Central in the US. So my influences, I think, are quite American still. So people like Stephen Colbert and Seth yeah. Meyers and Jimmy Kimmel, all the kind of late show circuit, people like Amy Poehler, um, Abby and Alana from Broad City. So there's a lot of those, a lot of whom came through Upright Citizens Brigade. So I guess that those people who've got, I mean, yeah, Stephen Colbert, I suppose, is the absolute pinnacle of intelligent comedy. But we don't, we don't really have that same culture of late night comedy news thing. Those monologues. I mean, the comedy monologue, anyone who is listening or watching and doesn't know Stephen Colbert, so he's the host of The Late Show. He used to have a show on Comedy Central called The Colbert Report, which was a fictitious character. He studied with, uh, well, studied, you know, was with Upright Citizens Brigade for years, incredible improviser. And if you just watch a couple of his monologues, which are all online, you can watch all of his, all of it. They are an absolute masterclass in 10 minutes of genius every night of the week. Admittedly, he doesn't write them all, but he helps write them. And um, in Zoom, when all of comedy went to Zoom and people were worrying about how to do it, I used to think, well, don't look at what you did on stage and adapt it. 
look at these monologues and that's what you're doing. You're monologuing in a, on a screen. You're, you've got to, those are your role models. So, um, so yes, I, I'm quite US influenced in my stand-up and performance. It was a very interesting testing uh, thing, as you know, COVID for, for lots of industries, particularly entertainment industries and how they managed to survive. I mean, good on the man who rented out his sheep for Zoom. That's one of the best ideas. But, you know, it's the comedy is when you go to a comedy night and it, it's, you know, get them a bit drunk and it's all, it's that group thing. And But it, it was fascinating uh, them trying to do stuff on Zoom because it was pretty agonizing. But it, it, it's odd. I used to like it. I know it sounds really weird. I liked it. I think it's because I'd worked in telly my whole life so I saw it more as doing something televisual yeah. mm. so I wasn't trying to do what we were doing in the real world and then do a bad version of it I was thinking how do you communicate we all know how to communicate through a screen because we were all surviving by watching people communicate to us through the television so everybody was watching Netflix or whatever so if you're thinking well what's powerful via this this little you know rectangular medium then you've got your answers but if you're thinking how can I replicate a live comedy gig through this screen that's going to be impossible so I thought it was was all about approaching it more like a TV broadcast and I loved I loved it that is really good advice because I, I do a lot of like workshops and things and doing them on zoom at the start of the lockdown was terrible because you know I do they're they're fairly weak I grant you but I do have a number of jokes yes. in my like sort of performance and you'd kind of pause and there'd be absolute silence everybody's got their cameras off you've no idea whether anybody's listening to you or not and you feel like you're just pouring something into a black hole. Whereas if you think of it as a TV show or as a TV performance, it's easier to cope with. It is, yeah. And watch TV shows for inspiration. I mean, I watched those monologues religiously through lockdown because I was running, the way I made money through lockdown was um, was running tons and tons of like workshops and masterclasses yeah. and becoming a hybrid of old me and new me just to make money and to get myself out there still. And um, I used to totally draw on inspiration from how those monologues were going. Obviously, the stuff I was running out had more robust content. But in terms of how to do it, I think, and I, it's even just with framing. I mean, you won't be thinking it now with how I am here. But when you see people on Zoom or whatever, and they're just like, you're like, literally, your washing's behind you. You're like, why not yeah. just have a quick look and go, is it tidy? Have I brushed my hair? Am I framed? Anyone can do that. It's not hard to make yourself. So I do think it's a bit televisual, isn't it, what we now do? And, and it's really powerful. We've all been loving being communicated with via screens. What is your long-term goal? It is just to keep agile and keep moving and keep being curious. So not to get stuck. If I get bored of anything, I don't mean bored as in I've got some attention span. I will do grit into things that are difficult, but just to not be afraid to keep walking towards the next thing that's interesting and to get out of my own way. Yeah. Just not limit ourselves by what the world tells us is limiting. We should decide what our story is. And it might involve mess and failure and blood, sweat and tears. That's fine. But we decide. And to play Madison Square Avenue or whatever. What is the top comedy gig in America? <laughs> I don't know. Is, is, is it the Apollo I don't know. I don't do much of it. Yeah, that, those those kind of venues. I mean, doing Apollo was such a massive thing for me on this side. I feel like I'm still, I'm still like feeling Living very in the fortunate glow. that I got yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, what do you think is most misunderstood about being a comedian? That it's effortless. If we do it well, it looks effortless. And there's nothing effortless about it. It takes a lot of effort. Do you, do you think that the, the top people, the real masters get to a point, you know, the Richard Pryor's, that it is actually quite effortless for them or no? I, it's effortless when you're up there. I, I already find that if I've done the groundwork, it's quite effortless on stage. But there's a lot of effort that goes, your material doesn't write itself. There's a lot that goes into getting your mindset right and your material right that you can just turn up and be present. Practice, practice, so practice. So I think, uh, yeah, practice, practice and... and 
practice so much that you can let go when you're on stage and it takes a lot to be able to just go right I'm here now I'm going to forget everything I've prepared and just be live in the room it's the great advice of my friend Chris who was Welsh musician of the year once upon a time Chris Reese, Christopher Reese. but he I remember I, I rap and um, I hadn't I, you know uh, I hadn't really done a gig in ages and then I was so nervous about it and then he was just like oh the gig's easy man just practice if you do your practice you get up and the adrenaline will take over but it's you know it's just a question of that Totally agree. I'm happiest when I'm backstage and about to go on. So by the time I get to the point where I'm about to go on the stage, everything is great. And those 20 minutes, or if it's a keynote, an hour on stage is the best 20 minutes or hour of my day. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Business Without Bullshit is brought to you by Ori Clark. Straight talking financial and legal advice since 1935. You can find us at oriclark.com. What's been your biggest fuck-up to date? That's an easy one and not one I'm proud of. Um, I used to represent TV shows and formats globally. Um, I used to work for MTV back in the day, like 20-odd years ago, and we used to um, sell things like Beavis and Butthead around the world. So mm. we were the only people making money out of adult animation, as in not not um, only fans, but animation aimed at adults. And um, the guys, Matt and Trey from South Park, um, said, you know, do you think you might want to represent South Park around the world? And they told us what the show was. And I was like, no, that's never going to work. Yeah. And then I spent the next and spent the next two years trying to get it back, which we did. <laughs> but yeah, I should say, I didn't turn down commissioning South Park. It was who would represent it around the world. So I'm... It was, a, it is a bizarre show. My wife wanted to watch it because they did the Megan uh, piss take saying worldwide yeah. privacy tour, which was hilarious. But she'd never seen South Park before. She's in Trinidad. She just, we watched it for 10 minutes. She's go. What is yeah. this program? And I was like, yeah, it's a bit of, a, it's a bit of an assault it. on the senses initially, you know. But it is, I love it. And it's paid for the house I'm sitting in. So it's, it was a mistake I made that I then unmade that then paid off a house. So there you go. What's your passion outside of work? This is probably very in keeping with my life phase is anything kind of green nature, sea. Um, I go to Cornwall a lot. I love walking my dog. I run. So anything, anything where I'm literally outside, just away from everything in nature i've away got to from that camden. stage where <laughs> away from, yeah although it's funny living in camden we've got a lot of green around so well, yeah L- london does one, one of the greenest cities in the world yeah so i love and you're never actually that far from there's a poem called the trees on the holloway road which um you might not think there are any but there's a poem about it and there are many what what's the worst piece of advice you've ever been given I think it was probably don't do English. I was told at school, um, my English teacher hated me because I was quite sort of naughty and I was out smoking and drinking and doing things I shouldn't do. And she just said, you shouldn't do English at, um, at, in those days, O level. She said, you shouldn't be, do, say, you know, GCSE level, you shouldn't be doing English. Um, you're, not, you're no good at English. And she was mistaking the fact that she, she didn't like me as a person and she found me challenging as a person for the fact that I, and I went on to do an English degree got a double first make my language my living out of words so being told you're not good enough to do English by a teacher who just didn't like me and didn't like my rebelliousness was the worst advice I was given what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given it was given to me by Dr. Kevin Dutton, who's um, he's written a book that I would recommend to everybody called The Good Psychopath's Guide to Success. He co-wrote it with Andy McNabb. And it's a brilliant book, but he gave me advice on my podcast. And he said, when they've done all this analysis about success and what is success, the most common denominator across everybody who exhibits ex- exceptional success is not just that they know how to do things well, but that they do things when they really don't feel like doing them. And if you're somebody who's capable of doing the things you really don't feel like doing, 
yeah. And when I thought back to the things that I've done that have possibly been the things that would look to anyone like they were more exceptional achievements, they fall into that category, whether it's running a marathon, doing stand-up, gritting into boardrooms when it's when you're in the minority. So yeah, just doing what needs to be done even when you don't feel like doing it. It's so true. It's so true. And it, 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 it's like the other one, um, if you're not getting enough done, get up earlier. I mean, no one wants to get up, but it's I'm like, not very good at that one, to be fair. Yeah, but you're getting a lot done. But there's a lot of people who are like, I just don't never get it. And then you talk to them and like, well, I get up at about 10 and by 12. I mean, it's like the fucking day's over, man. You know, it's like... I know. You've got to get on with I it. I was on a panel earlier this week and they the quickfire question at the beginning, among others, was what time does everyone get up? And everybody on the panel was getting up at 4.30 or 5 a.m. Apart from mm-hmm. me, I go to bed about 4.30 or 5. And then this research person stood up, a leading research psychologist, saying... Um, one of the things that's an indicator that people won't do well, the later people get up and go to bed, yes. the least likely they are to make a success of their life. I'm very so pleased with having myself just now. Gone, ah. <laughs> it, there's truth to that, but you do get the night owls. Churchill, I mean, he I'm a night owl down. and that's the way it is. Churchill spent a large amount of time in bed though, you know that, right? That's what I mean. He's the example, he used to sleep in, he'd have a nap, but he'd work late, all of that. I like to think I'm like Churchill then. Yeah. What advice would you give your younger self? I think that's a really easy one. That's kind of the imposter syndrome thing. Nobody knows what they're doing. Everybody thinks they're going to be found out. Stop mm-hmm. comparing your insides with other people's outsides. And it's not about Ooh. pretending you think you're amazing or denying that you're, you feel like an imposter. But with that knowledge, you can lean into that all you want and just keep walking forward with it. You don't need to pretend it's not there, but just still do it. Still do the thing. Um, so I think that advice. And the other thing is... Um, and again, this came out, it sounds like I'm shamelessly plugging the podcast, but every week we get life advice from people and it is quite mind-blowing often. I can't remember who gave this life advice, but it was, um, it might have been Deborah Meaden. It was, don't give up. And the point at which you most think you should give up is often just before your success is about to come. So when you Dark absolutely hit a dawn. wall, you're like, I just cannot do yeah. this. Yeah, exactly that. So I'm going to give this up. I, with, and just to give an example, and I, this is not made up because it retrofits nicely, I really was at the point of thinking I'm going to give up stand-up last year. I thought I've been going seven years. I'm hoofing around. I'm getting really good work on tele, radio, um, keynote speaking, but I'm not breaking through on the circuit as a stand-up. I'm not getting yeah. enough work. As a, why am I doing it? And then I got Apollo literally the week I was like, I'm going to give up. And then obviously I was like, well, I'll, I'll give up after Apollo. And of course I haven't. It's always like when you lose something and you look and you look and you look and then you think, right, that's fucking it. I'm buying a new one. And literally it's, you know, it's like yeah. it appears. I mean, um, yeah, it's a, it's good advice. And I like this comment about don't compare your insides with someone outside. I mean, it sort of makes no sense, but it also makes perfect sense. Do you know what I mean? Well, that's what we're doing as imposters. Yeah, we're looking, we're standing there feeling like shit, knowing that I've just had a row with my partner, I've been crying all night, I've got this health thing going on, and then we watch someone else on stage and go, look at you and your nice outfit, your hair brushed all slick. Well, I can stand on stage yeah. looking slick and perfect, yeah. and I can be like crying all night, and it's, who, what do I know? So all I do know is everyone's got a story that is not as neat as the story they might be conveying in life. So obviously you do a wonderful podcast uh, with a swear word in the name. So we're huge supporters of Namaste Motherfucker. But is there anything else that you really would recommend people to read, watch or listen to? Yeah, so obviously my one is good. And lots of the people I've been quoting actually come are on my podcast. So I have everything from celebrities and comedians through to like I had Anil Seth, who's one of the world's leading neuroscientists. I had Kev Dutton, 
Deborah Meaden. So yes, mine is brilliant. But the books I would recommend, one of them is Kevin Dutton's The Good Psychopath's Guide to Success. That's amazing. Uh, looking at what the characteristics are of psychopaths, but the ones who aren't murderers. So Andy yes. McNabb is, a, is the highest scoring psychopath Kevin Dutton had ever tested. Really? And then you get through the prism of, yeah, through the prism of Andy McNabb's experience and Kevin Dutton's research, you start to work out what a... Yeah, because being a psychopath is an Olympic sport, right? I mean, I score highly as a psychopath in like five out of the nine disciplines, but the other four I don't score (laughs) at all, which is why I'm not a psychopath and why I didn't become chairman of Viacom, why I left when I was a senior vice president, because I I didn't have the what it takes to get to the very, very top in that psychopathic range. Anyway, so that's a whole other psychopathic conversation. If you've read The Psychopath Test, John Ronson, halfway through it says, if you're now thinking, oh my God, I'm a psychopath, you're not one. Yes, exactly that. It's like if you ask if I'm, you ask, you keep asking yourself, am I a narcissist? I said to my therapist, I keep thinking, am I a narcissist? And she went, well, the fact you're asking the question is a very good sign because <laughs> narcissists don't tend to be asking that question, um, although it has got I in it. The other book I would recommend is Oliver Berkman, who wrote, um, he wrote this column will change your life in The Guardian for over 10 oh, years. Yeah. And he's a brilliant, brilliant, right? If you Google Oliver Berkman and any topic from, you know, productivity to imposter syndrome. He's written a column on it. But his first book, his most recent book is called 4,000 Weeks, which are the number of weeks we have in our lives. So um, how to be, yeah, so that's 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 brilliant. But the, his first book is called The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. And it's a melting pot of all the stuff he wrote about and researched in his columns. And it's looking at everything from how stoicism might be an approach that we could use in life. So it's it's self-help for people who hate self-help and it's rigorously debated it's academic but it's totally portable advice and he was actually my first ever podcast guest on on namaste motherfuckers and i i'm gonna get him back he's the only guest i want back a second time so far not because the rest weren't brilliant but his research and writing is ever evolving so anything by oliver berkman is brilliant as well and of course Brene brown anyone who isn't familiar with Brene brown Start with her TED Talk on vulnerability. 18 minutes of your life you will not regret. So that was this week's episode of BWB Extra. And we'll be back with a new episode next Tuesday. Until then, it's goodbye. Goodbye.